I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Welcome back to Align Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and today's phenomenal interview, I got to have uh, someone that I've had immense amount of respect for for the last decade or so, Dr. Stuart McGill. Dr. McGill is a return guest on this here program, and uh, for good reason. He's, what's his story? He is a professor emeritus at University of Waterloo. He's a professor there for 32 years. He's retired now he's a writer of several books that folks in the fitness chiropractic physical therapy personal training realm consider to be a uh, bible and uh he's amazing he the last couple books he did were more for layman folks so the last one was the gift of injury before that the back mechanic highly recommend you checking this man out um this is episode 155 i think it's like three years i've been on this podcast every monday morning we've released an episode for three years dear God. Um, in this conversation, we get into everything around uh, spinal mechanics and educating folks on how to start integrating better movement into 100% of their lives and some of this slow whittling away that we do to our spines, not realizing it, how to recover that movement function and uh, yeah, actual tips in this thing. Really important stuff. We get into uh, this. the previous book, uh, Gift of Injury, is with Dr. Stuart McGill and Brian Carroll. Brian Carroll is an elite uh, weightlifter and he smashed his spine throughout his career. So a lot of takeaways on how to reverse immense injury and how to keep it from happening in the first place. That was excessively long intro. I apologize. Here's a little clip. You earn the ability to train and you, you earn training capacity. So if you use it up by moving poorly and slouching, watching television and these kinds of things, biologically, all of your tissues, they can only, they, they have a tipping point. Thank you so much for tuning into the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can start the five-day movement challenge where you will learn how to integrate better movement into 100% of your life. You can get the show notes for this episode and the rest of them. Uh, the quote that I have is, comes out of a book called The Prophet. I highly recommend the book, The Prophet, and goes a little bit like this. You talk when you cease to be at peace with your thoughts, and when you can no longer dwell in the solitude of your heart you live in your lips and sound is a diversion and a pastime i'll keep going a little bit and in much of your talking thinking is half murdered for thought is a bird of space that in a cage of words may indeed unfold its wings but cannot fly really cool uh if you guys check out on the instagram line podcast i put all sorts of random quotes like that on the, on the stories if you guys are into that just little insights that i gathered throughout the day um thank you so much for reviews on itunes greatly appreciate that that uh, if we read your review we will send you out a box of something delicious from uh, on it the review we got this week comes from let's see here how do we say this prans pranzizzle pranzizzle i think that's how you say it pranzizzle uh something different five stars something different every listen zero eagle ego and super interesting i greatly appreciate that working on that ego thing uh, i don't think it's resolved yet but 
it's coming along. Thanks for that, Prancizzle. Reach out at Align Podcast on the old Instagram, and we will send you out something delicious, probably Alpha Brain or something good from on it. Uh, I think we're probably good. Here we go. Tune in. I hope you guys enjoy Dr. Stuart McGill. He's an absolute legend. I have heaps of respect for this man, and uh, I hope you guys really enjoy. Here we go. Chicka chicka bow. Podcast. I wonder with that. So it's like the the disc brakes come from Formula One cars. From from my understanding, we we get all this information from higher level athletes that can then trickle down into normal folks. I wonder is what you see with somebody an elite lifter like Brian? Is that something that you see at normal layman level as well? Well, certainly uh, from a, a mental point of view, yeah, people are warriors or they're passive or they want someone to do something for them rather than taking control. Yeah, these are all personality uh, patterns that determine how we handle each individual. Um, so with Brian, we had a very dedicated professional uh, and he was obviously very open to our advice, so he listened. Um, but I'll, I'll just tell this story and then I can answer your question and its relevance to, to the lay public. Um, when I, I told him that here's what you need to do to get out of pain, and, and I'm not even sure you can, but here's what I think. Because remember, he'd been told by many docs, orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, that he, he's, he's really past the hope point now. Very substantially, uh, well, I'll just use it, very extensive tissue damage. Um, but I said here, in my opinion, after measuring this, is what you need to do to get out of pain. Um, and then uh, he said immediately, good, then I want to train because I want the next world record again. And <laughs> I said, this is always a two-stage process. Let's work to get you out of pain. Then we will change our uh, focus to, to training. But uh, we're not going to make that decision now. When you're out of pain, I want you to fly back up here with your wife. And we're going to go out to dinner with my wife and uh, have a conversation about whether you really enjoy your new life without pain or are you willing to risk it all take the risk and quite possibly um, uh, win another world record or have really uh, a difficult hole to uh, dig out from and you know what every super athlete says they say oh I'll take the risk right and uh, go for the record. So having said that story to characterize the uh, psychology of a super athlete, you will find that same mentality in people walking around as well. They are high performers, hard-driven people who are willing to pay the price to achieve a goal. There are other people who are precisely the opposite. So you figure all of that out and decide how you're going to um, work with them in a way to achieve the um, best outcome with the least amount of risk and, and the highest chance for success. Yeah. Uh, what about it at like a structural tissue level? Is that, if you look at random, random Joe, do you, will you see a lot of this similar type of damage if someone just from moving poorly day to day, sweeping the floor? No, okay. uh, no, not at all. Okay. Um, 
But uh, I'll, I'll answer that question in a way that might surprise your your listeners. There's uh, a lot of discussion I see on forums and whatnot on the internet that oh, MRIs are very poor at uh, yeah. linking to and this kind of thing. Right. Actually, the people who read the MRs are really quite poor because I'll see people who, who well, that's where it starts because uh, when they bring their MRI report, uh, they'll say, oh, you've got degenerative disc disease and that's basically it. And then when I look at the MR, because I'm one of the few people in the world that have created these injuries on cadavers and, and uh, animal specimens, humans, etc., and we know exactly what causes very specific types of tissue damage. So it wasn't degenerative disc disease. We might see microfracturing on the end plate. We might see leaking of the nucleus into the vertebral body. We'll see the inflammation, which a radiologist would call a uh, modic change. And yet that was a fracture and a loss of load-bearing ability. The disc got a little flat. There's more load on the facet joints, et cetera, et cetera. So they're not very good at capturing those cascades. So when we actually look at the MR, which is the full loading history, it's the wound, it's the scar, it's, it's what happened 20 years ago, it's what happened two weeks ago. But there's a lot of information there, but you have to have an assessment of the actual person and their current pain triggers to be able to interpret that image. So, so that, that's, that's the beginning of that story. So even people walking around on the street with, you know, lingering back pain or, or, or load sensitivities, they have features of their spine that go unrecognized quite often. And uh, it takes a very trained eye. And certainly the average radiologist, they're outstanding at finding tumors and those kinds of things. But we find all kinds of things in people's back and little uh, cysts and nodules on nerve roots and things that are accounting for pain. Um, that, you know, a, a doc might have told them, we can't find your pain on MR, it's probably in your head. And most of the time we find a real organic cause. Um, but they don't have the massive compressive damage that, that Brian had. That was, that was really quite unusual. But, but the story, and the most encouraging part, is in the book we show the before MRIs, and then the after, three years after, where he went through a year of bone callousing uh, and another year to regain his athleticism. And uh, well, you can, you know what you saw on the uh, post-MRs, the bone had filled in and whatnot. So we had to design a program to first address the neurological uh, changes and the uh, anatomical changes, uh, rebuild those tissues very specifically with uh, protocols, and then rebuild his athleticism. Yeah, I think it, it's almost like a maybe not old belief, probably still present belief, but once there's there's bony change, it's almost like, well, surgery, that's the only option. And then with seeing something like this, you're like, wait, the bone is growing, the bone's alive. You know, is that, yeah. can we get into a little bit of, of, of like what a bone is, how we can kind of actually be able to affect that? 
Yeah, well, let, let, let me start off with a little bit of a scientific foundation on that. So when people are training, say they're, let, let's take a deadlift regimen, for example, which is becoming very popular now. Uh, while you're training the deadlift, you are adapting neurological components. You're writing what's called an engram through repetition, which is a muscle memory or it's a movement tape. So it's important to move the same way every time, which is well, proper mechanics, etc. Um, so that that movement tape then transfers to when you're picking up your child out of the crib at two o'clock in the morning, because that's when some people, that's their real life. That's why they're training. It isn't to do deadlifts at the gym for the majority of the public. Um, but something curious happens with tissue adaptation. The tissues during the training session actually become weaker. They are slightly broken down, so muscle breaks down, but there's actually at the bone cell level, a micro fracture that occurs uh, in the bone. And this is what causes bone to remodel. The bone stresses, it builds uh, electric charge, which is it, it's piezoelectric. So it sucks in free ions of calcium and magnesium to lay it down on the bone that has just been stressed. Yeah. And uh, then you have to let it sit for a while to get it to stick. That's called the scaffolding part. And that can take four or five days. So when I see people going to a gym and, and they're with their trainer and they might do deadlifts three or four times a week, they don't realize. And, and their body doesn't tell them that they are probably the building up more cumulative stress to the bone and microfracturing. No one sees it. Uh, they're building that up faster than the rate of repair. So what bone callusing does is it recognizes recognize that training is necessary, but then you give a substantial amount of time because the adaptation takes place during the rest period. And, mm -hmm. and, and this is the flaw with, with, with some people and some athletes. They don't um, uh, honor the biology of the tissues um, adapt, adapting and, and growing stronger. And, and bone is, is a long process. Muscle repairs quite quickly, but uh, bone is, is much longer. But if you can callous the bone, um, it, it, it grows much thicker and denser. And when you look at the grand old men of powerlifting and the grand old women of powerlifting, I might add, they have very dense bone and end plate in their spines and it allows them to bear great load. But when you look at their training, they would uh, train heavy and then take five days off and then train heavy again. And that's how they became grand old men. But some of the younger kids on the internet now not realizing this adaptation cycle and how the great power lifters do it. They'll train, you know, do something every day or every other day. And, and those are the ones that, that get into uh, problems and, and lose their load bearing ability. It's like waiting for paint to dry before you put a second coat on. <laughs> well, it's a science. It's absolutely a science. Yeah. So another thing that, that it seemed like kind of blew Brian's mind was the awareness that you're always training. You know, you're always practicing. You call it like the, the lifter's wedge. Like as you're sitting down to take a poop, as you're chopping carrots, as you're doing everything, you're cultivating that, that wedge or that hip hinge. Can we 
get into that a little bit or yeah well brian uh writes a chapter about being an athlete 24 yeah. 7. so when you train and you're creating all of this adaptation that you will need to bear heavy load um you earn the ability to train and you you earn training capacity yeah. so if you use it up by moving poorly and slouching watching television and these kinds of things biologically all of your tissues they can only they, they have a tipping point so if you load them below the tipping point which is a, a very defined value um, it's good it's anabolic it builds you but when you cross the tipping point the rate of uh, breakdown uh, is faster than the rate of repair now now you're starting to get into uh, real problems mm -hmm. but uh, you only have so much capacity. You choose how, how you use it. So good posture, good movement spares the tissues. So now you have uh, the, the biggest capacity to train with. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to create adaptations uh, while you're training, which are mostly neural, plus the post adaptations through appropriate rest. Yeah, yeah. I, I use the analogy of hoses a lot. You know, you can think of your body as, as like, you know, a whole variety of different hoses. You don't want to pinch them off by being in compromised positions. And I mean, please disagree with that, but I wonder, is there any kind of like optimal spinal position for healing to open the hoses up for the tissue? Yeah, there is. The, but, but the second part of the answer is it's slightly different for everybody. Right. And that's what our assessment will show. So depending on their pain mechanism, depending on their age, depending on whatever, uh, we will find what's what we call the sweet spot. And wherever that sweet spot is, if it is a mechanically driven uh, pain due to a specific tissue losing its load-bearing ability, we, we try and uh, avoid the postures that stress that tissue, which cause it to stay desensitized. It's like me bending my thumb back and forth. Eventually, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Um, but if I stop bending my thumb, uh, it will desensitize, and then I can start training it again to make it more resilient. And increase its tipping point so it can bear more load in the future so you have to stop bending or compressing or tense tensing or or shearing or whatever the mode is that we discover uh, causes their pain sensitivity you've got to wind it down first so it's always a two-stage process wind down the pain sensitivity by kinking stop don't kink the hose to use your analogy and uh, then now we've got some capacity to build it all back up again. How much time does it usually take to start to desensitize that pain pathway? Well, in Brian's case, it was one hour. <laughs> in, in, in the next person, uh, you know, it depends. If they have a heavy neural component to the pain, so let's say uh, when they move, as you know, the nerve roots floss through the foramen in the spine and uh, say it's, it's being... Uh, pressured by a by a disc bulge or it might be an arthritic spur or whatever it happens to be um it it might take three months to start winding down that particular uh pain sensitivity facet joints when they're wound up uh they don't recover uh their 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 desensitized state sometimes it takes a month or two or three or half a year uh, if you get a bone bruise, an emotic change, and the inflammation in the bone now be 
because uh, it, it, there's an inflammatory response due to a leak of the nucleus. Um, that can take a year and a half to wind down that particular bone bruise kind of a sensitivity. But a disc bulge, as you know, the character or pattern of a, of a, a, uh, a, a dynamic disc bulge, there's many categories, but let's use that one, which is quite common in, in this day and age. Um, that comes on with a very sudden onset. The person moves a certain way and they get, you know, this feeling of a catch or some will describe, oh, it felt like a knife going in my back. Yeah. And they were down with heavy pain for a few days. And then within two or three weeks, they were really wound down and enjoying life again. So do you see how, again, it's a it depends answer. And when you understand the mechanism, uh, you uh, certainly know how to prevent uh, reoccurrence and how to build the foundation to to become more resilient in the future yeah it's there's some crazy statistic like 80 percent of all people experience low back pain at some point in their life which actually doesn't sound like that big of a deal but at the same time it's like no that's it's not okay is there any type of steps or processes or things for people to think about say if they do experience that like knife in the low back if they're out in the amazon they don't have a Cairo or a pt or you to, to go to or is it like yeah, of course there is. Everything, if you understand the mechanism, guides you as to, once you know the cause, you know what to stop doing in the future. We've, we've had patients who've had acute episode after acute episode, and uh, once they were aware of the cause, you know, it might have been simple as uh, they're a physical worker, and yet they bent forward to flush the toilet, and they felt as though someone put a knife in their back, yeah. but they didn't realize that that mechanism uh, we, we proved to them was it was a dynamic disc bulge and if they moved in a certain way they wouldn't replicate the conditions that was necessary so in that particular injury um, it is a mild compression without much muscle activity and a, bend, a forward bend. Um, so if we taught them a bracing pattern, a hip hinge, uh, and so they, they tended to move a bit more through the hips, they just eliminated the combination for that to occur again. But if you have someone who's, uh, say, more of an extension intolerant category um, and the uh, pain is due more to facet wear and hypertrophying uh, posterior uh, elements like uh, the ligamentum flavum and whatnot, the cat, the, those types of pains take longer to wind down. Um, and uh, it's caused by, uh, say, spine extension. So every time they get up, off the toilet or out of the chair or or it's almost comical that the first move is into spine extension so somewhere in their brain they have this engram that they default into extension to stabilize their back perhaps it's just a lack of a, a motor control strategy that that uh stopped stress concentrations that eventually led to pain yeah. but you know we can see those kinds of things fairly quickly and then test them immediately to see if in fact those are the pain triggers and if they are we then find well does more uh, stability and stiffness help does certain muscular patterns help um where's the sweet spot of, of load resilience etc and uh 
if there's a mechanical link to their pain, we will find it. Um, if there isn't, and of course we get patients with, uh, unbeknownst to them, they have a cyst on a nerve root. And it's, it's, it's uh, if I can say this on the radio, we put that into the shit happens category. Just, I, I cannot help them to remove the cyst. I can sometimes coach people to move in ways to stop sensitizing the cyst, but I have no skill to remove the cyst off the nerve root. And there's only one institute in Texas that I know of that uh, has a good record and a good efficacy for, for dealing with those. And we, we refer the patients uh, to them. So anyway, it, this, this very detailed assessment. Um, but getting back to the book and uh, uh, strength athletes and strength training, we go through all kinds of assessments that are um, linked not only to performance but to injury resilience as well for I'm just one example if, if you want to be strong and lift you need strong hands and if you don't have strong hands they'll be going into an over under uh, grip on the bar for for a deadlift at, at light loads so right away you've compromised your back your back is much better when it's balanced both sides take a double over hook on the bar but now bend the bar in external rotation through a latissimus dorsi posting pattern, for example. Well, you need good hand grip to do that, but it certainly spares your back, but it also enhances performance. So the book guides the reader not only, well, it doesn't give the medical description of the pain provocation tests, those are in my medical textbooks, but for an athlete to eliminate the weak links in their body so that they are more load resilient uh, and better able to to pick up load um, that that's the assessment section out of uh <laughs> Yeah, I was with uh, Pavel last night, oddly enough. I told him that... They just, yeah. uh, he's doing really well. We we see each other at the at Santa Monica uh, Old Muscle Beach on a, on a fairly re regular basis. And so he swings, he swings his kettlebells and stuff, and I do like my bar work and handstands and random. It's 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 a it's a cute it's a cute chemistry. And yeah, yeah. As you know, he's he's been a friend for many years. He's a fabulous personality and a fabulous wealth of knowledge. Yeah, he he he, he perked up when I said I was I was talking with you the next day. Um, but one of the things that that I got from him out of one of his books was the the when he breaks down irradiation and the higher degree of contraction all of a sudden you can start to the example he does is like contract your hand a little bit you feel it up to your you know your forearm contract your arm more you feel it your shoulder contract your arm a lot your hand a lot and you feel it through your whole body is there is there some type of conversation around that like a like a nervous system component to to grip strength and having a bigger deadlift or can we kind of bridge that that connection a little bit yeah absolutely more? I want to take a quick moment and thank our sponsor, Health IQ, for supporting this podcast. Health IQ is a life insurance company, not just any life insurance company. They focus their efforts towards people that are living healthy lifestyles. If you are a runner, cyclist, weightlifter, or just generally paying attention to the quality of food that you're eating, you should not be paying the same rate for life insurance. So you can jump on to Health IQ, like the letters IQ.com slash align to support 
with the show and see if you qualify for one of their plans. They are one of the fastest growing life insurance companies with over $5 billion in coverage and they save their customers up to 33% on their plans. As I mentioned, the reason they can do this is because they take into account the quality of life you lead. If you're investing in your health, you should be acknowledged for that in your life insurance policy. It's exactly what Health IQ does for you. So see if you qualify, jump on to healthiq.com slash align. Health IQ is in the letters iq.com slash align. Here we go. Back to the show. Absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll, you mentioned neural, but I'm going to go for three explanations on that one. So um, the, the irradiation and the more you squeeze the bar, uh, it starts to create a denser neural drive in your brain. So movement starts in your brain and your brain sends out, sends out pulses down the nerves that eventually activate uh, muscle. The stronger the thought, the more dense the neural drive. So you start to get more strength, but your brain has a fuse box. And if it senses joint instability, it backs off and says, I'm not gonna load this. So, But you can engineer out some of those instabilities in your body through irradiation and total body stiffness. It unleashes a bigger barrage of nerve signals. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the brain also chooses to send neural drive, say, say we're just squeezing a kettlebell in one hand. Um, if you squeezed the other hand with nothing in it, you would get a more complete neural drive through your body and more strength. So that, that's more of a neural explanation. But um, uh, the, the next one is a mechanical explanation. Your body is what, what we call a mechanical composite. So I'll give you an example of that. We could take a chunk of wood that is so strong and uh, of a certain stiffness. But if we uh, sliced that wood into thin layers and then re-glued it back together again with the grain of the wood in each layer opposite from the previous layer. That's called plywood, as you know. So a plywood, it's still wood, but it's a mechanical composite. So it's much stiffer and much stronger than wood before it was all cut up. Well, your body, you turn it into the composite once you uh, create that whole body uh, stiffness through irradiation. So instead of having agonists and antagonists to to creating uh, movement through this linkage, everything becomes an agonist to the goal. It tightens the fascia. The fascia creates stiffness around the joint, so now it is buttressed and stable. Now the brain can put on more neural drive to other points. So, so if you're a power lifter in a squat or a, a deadlift, it, it will allow you to uh, create more neural drive to the hip extensors, for example, so you can lift more. But the stiffer your, your spine and core, the bigger the neural drive. And that is all facilitated by appropriate coaching and hand grip and how you stiffen your neck and, and all of these things. So again, it's, it's, it, it's an incredible uh, well, you were talking with Pavel. Pavel, he's famous for saying strength is a skill. It absolutely is. Yeah. And radiation is all part of learning the skill 
of uh, moving things with with this body. Mm. Something that I find curious is is neck position while picking heavy things up, whether it be a squat or a deadlift or anything. Sometimes you see people crunching their neck back a lot. Sometimes you see people trying to keep it long and straight. Is there any type of explanation for people to have awareness of neck position when they're picking heavy things up? Absolutely, there is. And uh, again, there are muscular, neural, anatomical <laughs> uh, mechanisms to it all. Um, uh, if, if, and we, we go through the different styles of necks and, and how you might uh, posture the neck during a, a deadlift. Um, in fact, in the book, we show some very long-necked uh, deadlifters. Well, when you think about it, all of the pulling musculature originates from the neck because that's the mass from which trapezius uh, hangs from. And uh, if you're going to put a big load in trapezius and pull, your neck better be in a position to handle that load. And, and you'll see that there's a lot of power lifters walking around with bad necks. <laughs> they, they are um, heavily loading their neck in, in compromised posture. So the neck should be stacked. There's no question about that. But um, to begin the lift, uh, if, if you follow some of the principles of super stiffness, you might begin with a pulse, a very small micro pulse in the, in, in the neck into a stiffened core, and that leads the charge, so to speak, to get the weight uh, moving. If someone has an anatomically much shorter and thicker neck, they're probably a better advantage to what's called packing the neck. But now they can look up or they can look down, and it's so interesting, the different styles that you see among the elite lifters, but there's a reason for it. Um, you might see someone who looks up, fixes their gaze so that their vision is part of putting out dense neural drive, but also it helps stack their spine for more load bearing. But as they pull the weight up, you'll see their neck flexing down. So their finish of the deadlift is actually looking down. Well, there's uh, a mechanical advantage for some people because it lengthens the erector spinae when you when you uh, flex your neck and it, it creates a different position on the length tension curve. So you'll find that strategy in people who have difficulty locking out. But those who have uh, powerful hips uh, will probably finish never changing the position of their neck. So the, the, the neck position that they finish the final pull with was the neck they started pulling out of the lifter's wedge. So there's a start of that discussion yeah. but uh, with a little bit of assessment we will find uh, and experimentation by the way because sometimes you have to converge on these optimal uh, postures and mechanisms with each uh, person but uh, we'll find the optimal and uh, uh, guide them to um, more injury resilience with 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 higher performance that's what it's all about yeah i've i've, I've heard something along the lines of the, the the back and the butt of a power lifter is like the, the pecs and the biceps of a bodybuilder or something like that and i, I feel like it's like the back and the butt of any human being is like the pecs and the biceps of a bodybuilder like we need to have more awareness to our, our posterior side in order to just have power as, as a person you know is there some type of and, and again disagree with that like i trust your opinion over any of this over mine <laughs> but is there some type of um can we get into a little bit of just the value in engaging the back of your body to just 
be stronger in everything that you do or maybe is that bullshit well you know it depends what's going through my mind is uh, i have to see a synchronized swimmer uh next week very high level yeah uh i i don't know if that's really a relevant uh discussion for her um but so other uh, than specialized so bodybuilders are special but, but just a person that wants to move around the house well and be able to pick up trash off the ground and things like that well, uh, my, my bias in that would be to have a very balanced body. Yeah. Um, so if they have a posterior chain and truly they're 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 underpowered and undercoordinated in their backside, then you know that that's a, a clinical focus for them. But uh, they they might be uh, weak and uh, poorly controlled in the abdominal wall, so they cannot create sufficient uh, stiffness of the spine that allows it to bear a high load. Um, they might do all their training on two feet. In other words, they bench press, squat, power clean, deadlift, and never carry anything. Um, usually in those type of uh, training regimens, they have a relative weakness in the frontal plane. So their quadratus lumborum, the oblique muscles, are underperforming, and they get in trouble when they stand on one leg. So they might pick a bar off a rack, take a step back out of the cage, and that's when they get hurt because they haven't addressed the, the frontal plane component. So there's three examples of the front, the side and the back but uh, it's different in everybody but yeah. you know when you do certain um exercise programs uh you you find what we call farm boy strength there are no weaknesses so strongman competition and strongman training and of course we're not talking about the loads that they uh lift on the, on the television show with bill kasmeyer and people like that where we're saying use some of the training tools and dial them down so they're commensurate with with whoever the client or, or the person is but to carry something a suitcase carry as it's called it might be with a kettlebell is a very wise balancer of strength it builds your grip strength it builds your frontal plane strength it, it stiffens your feet and and I'm, I'm saying when you grip the ground and do it in a way that's mindful it really engineers out the the weaknesses in the body that might be region regional so certain exercises are just just cleverly designed yeah i disagree with what i with my with my previous question and i guess more what i what i'm inferring is oh my is uh culturally we have a tendency of kind of rolling our shoulders forward having our head push forward disengaging our glutes we're lifting more with our quads you know and it's we're in this sitting forward folded position so the backside so like low trap rhomboids all that stuff that holds that integrity of the scapula ends up kind of starting to disintegrate in a bit and the same thing with the, with with the butt and i've just i feel like with a lot of people if they start to bring a little bit more electricity back there all of a sudden they notice this new zing that they're like oh my god i didn't even realize i had a back and the front is it's equally important but it's we're just so imbalanced front to back is what i'm seeing and the abdominal wall is a different thing i think that and then it's we need to you know most people could use a little bit more stiffness in that area as well so it's always going to be both but you know what I'm saying? I 
Well, I, I, I do. I'm listening to this, and where, where my brain is, is you're describing patterns. Yeah. And what we do as clinicians is pattern recognition. So you put together two or three different patterns in that description. Um, you recognize the pattern. Uh, I fine-tune it a little bit, of course. Right. And then you, you, you treat appropriately. I'm, I'm thinking of some of the studies that we've done over the years where uh, we screened, say, 150 people and uh, just one study that comes to mind we took the six flattest backs so they had no lumbar lordosis just flat backs and then we took the six with the most lordotic backs or the biggest curve in in their low back and then we uh, trained them with opposite training regimens for six weeks to see if we could change the curve uh, in their back and uh, there's no question that the the, the uh, phd physical therapist who who was the primary on this study, she changed their elastic equilibrium and she changed the curve in their back. But now the question was, was it a good thing to do? Um, well, uh, the flat backs, interestingly, before the study, they stood with the least tension in their back, but when they sat down, their flat backs got even flatter and they had more stress sitting. But the, the, the ones with the big curves in their back, sort of what you might put in the pattern as typical of gymnasts and these kind, kind of body types, they stood in elastic stress and when they sat down, they uh, relieved the stress. So there's two different patterns, standing stressed one and sitting stressed the other. And then the opposite. But after we changed the elastic equilibrium, so the ones who stood in elastic stress, they stood in less stress, but then when they sat, now they sat in more stress. So it's so interesting what you gain on the swing, you lose on the merry-go-round. So be careful with corrective exercise. And are you really achieving what you uh, want to achieve? Mm. So you know, it's, <laughs> again, the assessment will reveal where these balance points are, and it will reveal what you must do to uh, reduce the pain and not cause a problem elsewhere. How about some of the, the less obvious muscles? And I don't like to like disintegrate or focus on any individual muscle at all, but sometimes if it is disengaged and you know offline, it's like, okay, we need to wake that up. Lats is something that first it's like, what the hell is a lat? You know, but how does that relate to something like a bench press or a deadlift or or movements like that you wouldn't necessarily think it's just a, a lat pull down that's what lats do right they do lat pull downs well i'll tell you a story now um you know i was a professor of uh, biomechanics for well over 30 years and uh, i remember a young professor setting an exam and uh, he, he said to uh, the students, what muscles do you use to do a push-up and a bench press? And some student wrote in there, lats and uh, biceps and, and really just named piles of muscles. And he failed the student. And I said, you don't know, you're the professor and you don't understand high performance pressing because you, the, 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 
both of those exercises are total body exercises. When you think about it, to push long head of bicep flexes the shoulder. It's exactly what you want. And it's exactly what the pros do. When they bend the bar with lats, they, they push and pull the bar apart to get through sticking points. They're very wise. And when you measure them doing it, that's exactly uh, what they do. So isn't it interesting that the yeah. professor, young professor of biomechanics didn't understand mechanical composites of this fantastic linkage and the role of multi-joint muscles. But latissimus dorsi is, is incredibly important for bending the bar and eliminating the uh, sticking point on bench press. Uh, it's, it's absolutely essential for locking in for a lifter's wedge for a, a deadlift, uh, for example. Yeah. And uh, not only that, it's a, it's a terrific stabilizer and spine extensor all the way down to the sacrum. So anyway, th there's just a, a, a funny um, story to, to show the lack of understanding even among some people who are supposed to be experts in, in understanding this. Right. Yeah. And then the similarities between the, the hip girdle and the shoulder girdle, I think is, is interesting. And the, you know, the spreading of the bar, the breaking of the bar, that's a similar thing that a person might do for, for a squat with their feet on the ground. Right. Well, absolutely. Uh, but I, I, again, it depends. Are they front squatting, back squatting, uh, hex bar squatting? Uh, you know, it, it, it really matters. Um, so in certain types of squats, if you're trying to get more performance out of a back squat, it is important to... Uh, grip the ground with the toes and the heels. Try and you, you don't spread your feet apart, but you try and try and grip and externally rotate, and you'll find right away. And, and again, I'm not talking through my head on this. We've measured this. Uh, I, I remember an NFL lineman teaching them how to squat better and uh, getting more engagement of the gluteals out of the lifter's wedge and, and pulling through in the drive. So if the uh, pull and squat was a tool to to better engage the glutes and train it. Um, a little bit of mindfulness on these techniques, as we're describing, was was very much a key. Now, would I do that to a uh, a high jumper who is to, who is building gluteal power to jump off one leg, or they want to dunk a basketball? Probably not. So, do, do you see how the the answer changes a little bit? Yeah. Now, the front squat is interesting. The front squat is predominantly quadriceps and hamstrings, not so much the glutes. So floor grip uh, quite changes in the uh, in in the front squat. Mm. How about uh, congruency with the, with the hips? A balance of sometimes you see somebody do like a lunge, you would see or a squat or anything. You'll see their pelvis go through this wandering, meandering type type position because they're kind of getting around probably lack of range of motion in certain certain ranges. Is that something that that is that you're you're obviously assumably watching with people? And what's the relevance to to finding that that balance in your hips as you're going? through a squatting range well I, I pay attention to it very very much yeah. um, for both the injury resilience uh, injury risk and the performance potential but it may or may not be an anatomical reason it might be 100% motor control they just haven't locked in the stiffness so they're sloppy now if you're under a thousand pounds and you're getting sloppy 
A, you're going to get hurt, and B, you'll, you'll lose the lift. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of it depends answers once again, but it might be 100%. They just don't know the technique. Um, the next person, they might have, uh, say, uh, a labral sensitivity in their hip. Uh, or they might have asymmetric hips anatomically, but the assessment will show and reveal all of these mechanisms so that you can get the most appropriate uh, corrective exercise. You know, you, you can deep squat them as a screen and, and some people say, oh, well, it's due to ankle mobility. Not really, we don't find that very often. Um, if you change foot stiffness, it may clean up their whole squat. And you haven't, done, you haven't touched ankle mobility one little bit or it might be anatomically defined by the shape of their hip socket. Some people have deeper hip sockets, some people have very shallow hip sockets. You might change it with, with knee widths, for example, to better suit their anatomy. But anyway, we, we try and show a few of these things in Gift of Injury, yeah. uh, how to determine um, uh, your, uh, your optimal hip width to do some of these things, uh, should you be gripping the floor? Uh, these kinds of questions that you're getting at, I think. Yeah, and people can also, I also am thinking in the hip exam, we show those as well. Just simply going on your hands and knees and rocking your buttocks back to your ankles will really reveal, because you see that isolates out the hip joint. It will reveal if there's a hip asymmetry there uh, anatomically that's causing the person to get a little bit loose and sloppy going down into the squat. Or is it all motor control? If it's motor control, that's, that's almost good news because that's highly coachable. Yeah. You, you can't coach out a, an asymmetric uh, uh, anatomy. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we'll wrap up here in, in, a, in a jiffy, but the people can refer back to previous episodes. I think the last one, maybe the one before where uh, we get into, or you get into the, um, around the world like eastern europe versus western europe there's actually different anatomy of the of the hip and so people can look into that is that is can we maybe maybe just touch on that a little bit is that something that you see all around the world there is the obvious oh, eastern western europe thing no no you, of course you do um if you let, let's go back again i i try and base all of my answers on science first and then put on a nuance to, to make it applicable to the listeners. Yeah. The scientific principle or beginning of that whole argument is just look at the incidence of orthopedic disease around the world. Um, one of the highest rates of, at least for Caucasians, which is Europeans, of hip dysplasia is in Poland. Poland is the epicenter of hip dysplasia incidence. And the anatomical reason for that is um, on average, not in every Polish person, but on average, they have the shallowest hip sockets going across Europe. And you see that same architecture in, in the Ukraine and Bulgaria and places like that. And then it morphs into what's called the Dalmatian hip as you move down through Hungary and into uh, Croatia. But anyway, uh, the point is um, the hips that cause dysplasia uh, are shallow it also allows them to be terrific deep squatters well i just um, described where the best olympic lifters come from 
those countries in Eastern Europe and polls are absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, let's look at a different orthopedic disease, FAI, femoral acetabular impingement. It comes from having a certain angle of the roof of the hip that when you deep squat, the femur flexes into and hits the bone in front of the hip joint. Um, so it's a very deep hip socket. Uh, those, uh, the, the people with the, the highest incidence of FAI are the Celtic nations, which is Normandy, France, uh, Scotland, and Ireland. Well, how many Olympic lifters come from the country that I, that I just listed? very close to zero yeah. but the standing strength is phenomenal but the power out of the hole is very poor if you take a dysplastic hip with a shallow hip socket the power coming out of the deep squat is very very high um, so when i go to other areas in the world japan for example has uh same deal very shallow hip socket so when you watch people uh, trying to uh, adapt certain Japanese styles of martial arts into other genetic pools, they end up with every single one of them needs a hip replacement by the time they're 45 because it didn't fit their particular architecture. Yeah. So when you go with orthopedic disease rates, it reveals a lot, but then you obviously have to investigate the stresses that led to the uh, injury incidents and the stresses come from uh, anatomy. But what the, that, that's the science side. But for the application side, it doesn't matter where your, your genes originally came from or how they all got mixed up. What is essential is the assessment. Uh, in gift of injury, we, we, we teach some of those very simple assessments. I think every trainer should do a basic hip scour test on their client, and that will reveal how deep they should squat, how wide they should squat, and this kind of thing. And, and maybe uh, a, a power clean or an Olympic lift is not for that person. They would be so much more injury resilient and performing better if they just suitcase carried or high push to prowler not low push high push mm. and uh, you know really create the uh, athletic uh, strength that way so anyway these are all discussions to again pull out the person's uh injury uh best suited to their goals and their particular body type but injury brings this to the forefront that that's where the name of the book came from by the way it was the gift of injury to brian that showed him how to incorporate this science and de-stress his body and get his uh athleticism back with much less pain and virtually no pain i might add and uh less stress yeah I mean, this isn't random this yeah. is science so the, the the last last uh, maybe maybe last question I have is uh, I'm I'm about to write an article for On It. Do you know Do you know On It? They make like supplements and all that stuff. Remember those yes. guys? Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do an article for them in relation to balancing the front and back. You know, and so a lot of people say like an upper cross syndrome type situation where like the pecs and the shoulders roll forward and then suboccipital crunch back and then low trap and all that is is 
more disengaged, you know, so, so kind of creating some degree of, of a general recipe for people to start to start to find a little bit of neutrality front to back there. Is there any type of exercises that you would go to or movements or concepts that you'd go to to start to rebalance something like that, specifically with that mid spine, low trap, that business just like, it's not, it's not on, it's not happening. Yeah, ab- absolutely there is. But now my next question for you is when you observe that pattern in a person, is it hardware or is it software or is it both? And you'll find that sometimes these postures and movements are habit. It's okay to slouch. It's okay. Uh, And then you might do the hardware change. You might do a thoracic spine extension stretch. You might balance up the neck flexors, the deep neck flexors that were being over um, uh, um, dominated by uh, a sternocleidomastoid pattern, for example. So you you recognize all these mechanisms. mechanical features, you do the corrective exercises, and you find that you stand them up, you stand them up, you coach them, and in two minutes, you look over, and they've just gone right back to their old pattern. So uh, we've measured this in several different studies. You have to work on changing their software, their representation of those postures and patterns together with doing the most appropriate corrective exercises. So that's my answer. It's not just doing the corrective exercise. They are necessary, but not complete it's you've got then got to do the software programming which is depending on where the corruption is they just might need to be made more aware of it or um, if it's painful then uh, let let pain be part of the tutoring process (laughs) are there any corrective exercises you could kind of recommend blindly without seeing somebody or is it always you have to see the person well, I, I, I can give some generalizations, but if we're really tuning a person to be peak, then obviously I, I need to see the person. Yeah. But, uh, you know, chin forward, what's the cause? Is it their life just to sit at a computer, poke their chin, look at their cell phone, and uh, not once? Well, I, I say, when was the last time you walked for 15 minutes and that they can't remember that? I think we have a bigger problem. <laughs> yeah. And so, specifically activating activating that area kind of that allows the, the scapula to start winging out like a like a bird is there anything that you'd recommend with that it's okay if not but i'm just wondering if there's any specific exercise well, I, I, yeah there is i could go both ways on that i could create some strengthening patterns performed in a mindful way so it's, it's addressing both software and hardware change or i might ask them here i want you to stand nice and tall with no muscle activity and now first time they've been forced to stack their joints in a tall way so do you see how you could you can use polar opposite cues there to get them back and shut it all down now if you're not stacked and you've got a uh uh, a a kyphotic thoracic spine and a chin poking architecture your muscles are on there's no way you can relax them and shut them down so i might give them some feedback cues just palpate one of your erector spine in your low back now i want you to stand in a way that they are completely relaxed and i'll show them what they must do so do you see how i might use complete relaxation or i might use a specific muscle cueing yeah yeah so it's like 
resolving the the more intrinsic imbalance before packing on superficial muscle seems like kind of a worthy idea is that of course but make sure you stop the cause too yeah right exactly awesome man well thank you so much again i really i I love the gift of injury and um i've again i've i've like blown lots and lots of smoke up your butt by now but um i really your work and approach and perspectives have really shifted my approach to working with clients so Thank well, you. Thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> and if I could direct people, uh, if they're interested in the book, uh, go to backfitpro.com. They'll find the best price uh, on it there. And uh, also my co-author Brian's uh, website, powerrackstrength.com. Awesome. Yeah. Is there anything? Is there anything else to look out from you? Workshops or I don't know. Is there anything else to? Well, again, uh, yes, there are, but it depends on on who the person is, uh, what what they're what they're interested in. Yeah. But uh, that's all on backfitpro.com. If they look under whether they are a clinician or a back pain sufferer. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks so much, Aaron. I appreciate it. We finally, yeah, I think we nailed this one. This was, this was. Okay. Fabulous. I'll talk to you in a little bit then. Let me know when it comes out and we'll post it as well. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Align Podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning into that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Some ways that you can support this podcast, one of which you can pick up an Align Band, which is a heavy-duty resistance band. comes along with a door anchor and a carrying case and a video guide on how to mobilize those joints and integrate that body of yours. Really great stuff. You can be found on AlignTherapy.com and also on Amazon.com. I wanted to thank once again Health IQ for supporting this podcast. Health IQ is a life insurance company that focuses towards people that are taking care of their bodies. So any type of athlete, folks that are paying attention to nutrition, pretty much anybody listening to this podcast, uh, they focus on lowering rates for you because you deserve it. You get up to 33% lower rates than the standard. You can see if you qualify at healthiq.com com slash align that's health iq is in the letters iq.com slash align if you're a healthy individual and you got a family or some folks that you want to know that they're taking care of if you're not around that's the way to do it health iq.com slash line um, thank you also so much for utilizing the amazon affiliate link on the right hand sidebar of the podcast page bookmark that thing anytime you purchase some crap on amazon purchase that crap through that link we get a percentage of it costs you nothing and i think that's enough thank you guys so much for reviews on itunes thank you for listening thank you for supporting have a beautiful rest of your day